0: So today is September 8th, 2022. I've been wanting to record this podcast or just record my thoughts for a while now, but I just didn't feel like I was in a place to be able to. In two days, um, it will be the anniversary of my son's accident. And... Who I am as a person has fundamentally changed forever
1: since that day. And I suppose that many of you
0: who are listening to this have had some significant drama in your life also that has fundamentally changed who you are. And if you haven't, then you probably know someone who has, and I hope that this will provide some insight into what that feels like for them
1: or provide some sense of some sense of not being so alone
0: in your pain and your grief and your change and your recognition that who you once were is not here anymore and you are
1: now someone different because I see you I feel you, I feel me
0: I see myself now in a way that is entirely different than
1: who I was a year ago. And so in two days, it will be an
0: entire trip around the sun since the day
1: that Quincy was hit head on in the road. For
0: those of you that don't know, my son is okay. He is doing wonderful. He recovered pretty much fully at this point. But it's been a really, really challenging year for us. So I'm going to give you a little background about what happened and then talk a little bit about what the healing process has been like over the year and then what it feels like now to be sitting in my body but feeling like
1: a new person I imagine that although I have no idea So I won't presume to understand
0: anyone else's trauma because it's so just unique. But I would imagine that anybody who's ever experienced trauma understands what it feels like when I say that I was someone then and now I'm someone else and that I sort of grieve and miss the person that I was then even if the stories I was telling myself caused me pain,
1: even if my view or lens of the world and my place in it wasn't loving myself to the full potential I could, I still feel sad. There's a part of me that has to grieve my
0: for my own human experience that I no longer have with myself. I'm going to try to explain that as best I can.
1: And what that actually means to me. It may be a little bit about
0: who I am or who I feel I am becoming on the other side. So on September 10th of 2021,
1: I was filming a podcast with my good friend, Jill Zimmerman,
0: and I had my phone ringer off and we went inside
1: and we were discussing the podcast and
0: I, at some point, heard Jill look down at her phone and say, Katie, Jason's trying to call me. I think he must be trying to call you. And the way that I recall it is that Jill answered her phone as he was calling her. And I almost recall him saying in the phone to her, like I could hear it, but I'm, I'm not sure because my memories are pretty vague um, about some of this stuff, but they said, he said, Quincy's been hit by a car. And I remember almost feeling in my body, like I knew that it was coming. I know that sounds really crazy, but it took us a really long time to have Quincy We went through multiple rounds of IVF and we wanted a baby for a really long time. And so even during my pregnancy, I felt as if at any moment I could lose him. And maybe that was the beginning of my trauma in some ways,
1: because I was living with this fear that was a story
0: that I had made up in my brain that at any moment,
1: the love that I felt for him could be taken away from me. And that began from the moment he came into existence even from the day that I knew that I had the embryo.
0: (sighs) And maybe I'd been living that way, telling myself that story, feeling the sadness, feeling the fear, feeling the anxiety of the story
1: that I was, playing in my head for seven years.
0: (sighs) And that day when Jason said, Quincy's been hit by a car, my story
1: played out. And I don't remember much except just saying, oh,
0: my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, where's my baby? Where's my baby? Where's my baby? And I was barefoot, and I ran through the streets. It was two blocks over, crows fly from our house, and I tried to run there barefoot. And as I was running down our street, a red Jeep, pulled up down the street and it was my neighbor's son who's renting a house next door. And I banged on, I stopped him in the middle of the road and I started banging on the top of the car and asking him to please drive me. I needed to get to my son and I was, he got, he he was so calm. He was so calm and I got in the car and I was screaming at him. Please take me, please get me to my baby. Please get me to my baby.
1: Like, just go, please. And we, we turned the corner and we
0: pulled down the road and we went two blocks and turned right onto the street.
1: And there were people everywhere. And fire trucks and ambulance and
0: the guy who hit him was in a truck. He was sitting, he was standing in the middle of the road next to his truck. I could feel him seeing me. I had to run probably four or five houses down and I was screaming. I just remember screaming and this fireman grabbed me by the shoulders and he stopped me. And he said, you have to calm down. And he looked at me and he got my eyes to just look in his eyes and he had the brightest, most blue eyes you've ever seen. And I just focused in on them. And he said, you don't want to see him. And you have to calm down, you don't want to see him.
1: But I could not see him. So I went in any way and I ran over to
0: him. And honestly, it's hard to even remember who was holding him. I don't think it was Jason at that point. I think it was paramedics or maybe one of the firemen. People were everywhere, just
1: standing, looking and I just kept saying, "Mama's here, buddy. M- Mama's here. Mama loves you so much. I'm here. I'm here, baby. I'm here." He was lifeless, and he was there was blood everywhere, and his face was he he was just a mess. And I just kept saying, "I love you so much, buddy. I love you so much. Mommy loves you so much." We got into
0: the ambulance and they had Jason and I sit in the front and they had a window between the front seat and the back of the ambulance. And I immediately called my dad and he, I said to come to Charleston
1: right now, Quincy got hit by a car and we're going to need help.
0: And that put into motion him calling my uncle, who is a physician at MUSC, the medical university here in town, and my cousin, who is also a physician in town, and probably many other people that I I don't really know about at this point that were notified
1: that we were on our way to the emergency room at the... um,
0: the children's hospital at the medical university downtown on the way downtown, we both kept looking back and saying, is he alive? Is he breathing? And they were very patient with us and said, yes, he's breathing. Yes, he's alive. And none of the paramedics ever showed any sign of being frustrated or they just wanted to reassure us that
1: he was still alive and his heart was beating. So
0: we got to the emergency room and it was so dark. Like it's all I remember is how dark it was. Like even when we got there and we pulled in and the cart was being wheeled in and we went into this room, it felt sort of like this dark cave and my eyes just started darting around the room. I, I I don't know. I feel as if that at that moment I was trying to, I don't know, like keep my, um, focus on anything I could in order to stay hyper vigilant and aware in the moment. So I could answer questions so I could know what was happening. So I could try to formulate sentences, um, people were coming up to us. It's hard to remember it all. At one point, I looked over at Jason and he was just like standing in shock.
1: I suppose I was too. And and the
0: emergency room physician came over. He had He was the pediatric um, resident or attending. I have no idea. And he came over and he had gray hair and he was tall and thin. And he said to me, I'm going to be, you know, overseeing your son's care. We're going to put in a breathing tube. And
1: I just grabbed his hands and I said, He's my only baby. I don't have another baby. Please, please don't let, don't let him go. Please bring my baby back. He squeezed his hands so hard and asked him to please take care of my baby. And they took us up to the I want to say maybe it was the fourth floor um in the PICU and it seemed like forever
0: and my friends were there. It was COVID, so it was unusual. It was almost like COVID didn't exist. We were in this room with these green chairs and we were sitting there and I just was like breathing really shallow and short, quick breaths, and looking everywhere. My friends were holding my hands and, and Jason was
1: nearby, but we were separated and I remember I looked back
0: on the wall behind me and there was a sea turtle, a big mural
1: of a sea turtle on the wall. And the day that
0: Quincy's embryo was put inside me, I was walking along the shores of Pensacola Beach and a sea turtle literally glided along the shore in these crystal blue waters almost right next to me and I felt like that was a sign there was many other sea turtles (laughs) throughout my life since then my my good friend Jackie had given me unknowing to her about the situation on the beach had given me a necklace with a sea turtle on it during my pregnancy and told me that it was a symbol of fertility. And I had worn it around my wrist for a while. And actually the weekend before we were in Pensacola for her wedding, her dad is actually Quincy's godfather and he died the day Quincy was born. And we were at our wedding that weekend. It was a wonderful weekend. Quincy was so handsome as her ring bearer. I mean, just gorgeous. He just looked like—I can't explain. He had this pink bow, and this suit on, and pink bow tie, and his bright blue eyes. He—he he just
1: was so Quincy. And. Anyway, that
0: weekend, my dad had taken Jason out on the boat and I didn't know until later, but
1: a big sea turtle came up to the boat.
0: I feel whether this sounds hokey or not, like maybe that sea turtle was looking out for us ever since. So I'm sitting in the waiting room and finally the doctor comes out and they had been able to get the breathing tube in.
1: And so they walked us back to the room. And to be honest, it was probably one of the the worst moments that I've ever experienced.
0: He came out of sedation and was thrashing around trying to pull the breathing tube out of his throat. He didn't know where he was. And it was just scary. And it took six of us to hold him down. He's so strong. Like he's so strong. He always has been. And We all had to hold him down and for hours and hours and hours it took to get his medication right. So he would stop coming out of his sedation and thrashing around. I don't know how long it took for us to get the scans from the initial CT scan, but he had a brain bleed in his frontal lobe. And they needed to take him down for an MRI, but we had to get him stable before we could do that. And so they wheeled us down into another part of the hospital. And everyone was so concerned about getting him enough sedation, but not too much to be able to get the full scan of his brain and know what we were dealing
1: with at that point. So we were, sort of like,
0: at least for me, I can never speak for Jason, but it felt like an out of body experience pretty much from that moment on where I was just living in this, like above my body, but I could feel my body, like, like almost like I'm in a pool and I'm drowning and I'm just like doggy paddling and swimming as hard as I can to try to stay up. So my body was so tired, like so tired. But my brain was just like going so fast,
1: like just everywhere. Fast, 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 constant. And I, it was like, I was
0: watching my body from above, just trying, trying, trying to keep treading water. So we got through the MRI and we went back up to the room and it was a long, I don't know, maybe another 24 hours. We didn't sleep at all. We drank coffee a lot. We, I never let go of his hand. I just stand on one side, holding his little fingers or sit in a chair on the other side, holding his fingers. His face was so swollen. You couldn't see his eyes. His eyes were closed shut.
1: His whole face just looked, it was unrecognizable, really. Just wanted him to live, you know? So there are a lot of details in the middle here, but
0: we got him off the breathing tube. I believe it was in less than 48 hours. And when they pulled out the breathing tube, because we didn't know if his brain would work well,
1: then he looked at me and the first thing he said was, I love you, mama. He knew who I was, and he said, I love you. (sighs) It was just the most thankful I've ever been in my life to hear those words. And... From there, it was a lot of moments of working through step to step, like
0: how many things were wrong, like where were the broken bones in his face, where were broken bones elsewhere? Was his brain bleed stopping? Was what was happening so just like a lot of triage of like what what's going on here and ultimately we just existed you know like I'm sure so many of you have in these situations you just put one foot in front of the other and
1: and um you just keep going I guess
0: And then ultimately his brain was okay. And cognitively he seemed relatively fine, which was amazing. We had to make a really hard decision about who would operate on his face and cranium to help put it back together. Almost every single bone in his face had been smashed. And the doctor said that if the bumper hadn't, or the bumper or the car, I'm not sure where, hadn't hit him in the face and it had hit him in the head, he would not be alive. That his face was malleable enough that it absorbed
1: the shock of the hit and saved his brain. So we made
0: the very hard decision. But I think looking back, it was the right decision to go with our doctor, Dr. Patel at MUSC. And she um, conferred with another doctor out of New York City that specializes in facial plastics for pediatrics. And she completely reconstructed his face with screws and dissolvable plates. His sphenoid was pushed pretty far to the right and crushed and his left brow was also crushed and neither of those were really able to be put back in place. So today he still has a really offset um, sphenoid in the upper part of his nose. Sometimes you don't notice it, but if you see him head on, like in a picture, it's definitely there. It's been hard in some regards because his face is sort of like a reminder, although it's becoming more normal and he's so beautiful. Still. He's just such a beautiful little boy inside and out, but the reminder is there. So his left brow is lower, his left eye is lower. And his nose sits to the right side of his face. Um, But ultimately they were able to put his face back together. So he came home, we had two weeks at home and rehab and trying on a liquid diet. And then we had to do the surgery within those two weeks. So we stayed here, had the surgery and it was probably one of the second most traumatic points was being in the hospital the night of the surgery because Jason and I were so scared to put him under and afraid something would happen that would take him away from us. Um, And that night, we looked at each other and we said, if something happens to him, we are okay with not being here on earth anymore. Because honestly, I think at that point, we realized that we felt that our lives We just couldn't imagine living them without him. And especially if we made the decision to put him under and fix his face and then he
1: didn't make it. So that night was hard, but we went through surgery and he came out.
0: And it was hard to explain to him why he was now closing his eyes again and he couldn't see and he couldn't eat and he was so uncomfortable and he just wanted to be home and he didn't want to be in the hospital anymore. And
1: I just wanted him to be home. But we made it through all of this. And we all went home
0: if you can believe this, we were in the middle of a renovation of our house (laughs) at this exact time. And we had to move out of our house. Like, I feel like it was like a month after coming home from the hospital after the surgery. It was just such a crazy time. Looking back, like I have no idea (laughs) how we were even remotely sane. I'm pretty sure I wasn't actually. So, we had a lot of rehab, obviously. We had rehab in the hospital. We had rehab after. We had just tons of rehab. And he had a very complicated hand surgery. I don't even remember exactly when it was. It was definitely before the holidays because he had his cast on for a while um,
1: after the holidays. So, Here's what I want to talk about in
0: terms of the emotional side of things that we didn't or probably no one could ever be prepared for. But once things got back to a relative normal, meaning in January, once he was back, semi back in school, we all got COVID in January, but I'll say February got back in school Everything kind of set in like this, it was like that person that was living outside my body, looking at myself, treading water with a brain that was just on fire, had been
1: living like that for like five, six months. if I had to imagine what it feels
0: like to be an animal in the wild being stalked by prey,
1: that is what I felt like for five months. So, We all have gone through
0: trauma therapy through the medical university. We qualified for their program and we put Quincy in at first. He was having a lot of nightmares, unable to sleep in his own bed. Um, a lot of problems with hot water, like taking a bath. Um, just certain things would make him really angry. And it was really hard to see because if you know Quincy, you just know how much of a joy of a child he is. He will make you laugh and he's just happy. And we really just hit the jackpot with this one. I mean, he just can light up a room. He just is so just effervescent and he's like the beauty. Like he's like earth. He's just, he is like so much like truth and just like, who he is and this ownership of this spirit that just lives in him. Like truly, and it's not just because he's my child. He just truly embodies this. And people who like don't even know him have like noticed this about him. And anyway, it was hard to not see that Quincy, like he was depressed and he was sad. And it just, I don't know. I was afraid that he would never come back. But slowly over a few months of therapy, he wrote a book about his accident and he started to come back. Like he started to be Quincy again. Um, I don't know, like that movie Stella got a groove back. (laughs) Quincy got his groove back. You know, he just, it slowly started to trickle back in and he was the little boy that was doing laps around the house on his little scooter and jumping in his bouncy thing and just smiling and being him. And it's sort of incredible today to witness just what an incredible human he is. And God, he is remarkable. And so what I wasn't prepared for in terms of myself was the physical, physiological fallout that I would now experience from the trauma.
1: So I would say that my
0: coping was shit at the time I was medicating with probably drinking too much at night to try to calm my nervous system. So I could go to sleep. I am not good at taking any sort of sleep meds or um, any sort of like any like uh, Xanax or any sort of those medications. They just never work with my body and they feel terrible. And I almost feel like I'm just like exhausted the entire next day. So I had really very little coping strategies because my nervous system was so heightened exercise was not really something I could do because I couldn't recover from it. And that had always been my coping strategy in the past, as well as working, um, and kind of distracting myself from issues in my life. But again, a lot of those things just weren't possible as coping strategies at this point. Um, so I had been in a cycle of really, some pretty terrible nightmares. Oddly enough, they were all not necessarily in the beginning, they were related to the accident, but as months went on, they were actually related to trauma that I had experienced in my childhood, which was very interesting. So all of my nightmares were, um, surrounded by family trauma that I had as a young person. Um, and it started to just overwhelm me in a way that's really hard to explain. Um, I developed kind of night sweat, so I would, um, be sleeping and wake in this intense kind of anxiety state, sweating head to toe. And in the middle of some really bizarre nightmare, um, that I felt like I couldn't get out of and that started to happen pretty regularly. I had a pretty bad fight or flight response, if that's even the term. So I might end up, the way I describe it to people is if uh, if I was driving in a car and I like wasn't paying attention or looked to the side, and then I almost Rear ended somebody and I slammed on my brakes. And if you've ever had this feeling and you look up, you didn't hit the car, but like your whole body is like flooded with this like intense, hot, burning emotional sensation that just like floods through your body. I would get that probably 10 to 15 times a day. And it could have been a car just driving next to me that was louder than normal while I was walking on the street. It could have been seeing Quincy in the front yard. It could have been just getting out the car to walk into a store in the middle of a parking lot that was busy or not busy. It could have been the sound of a shoe dropping on a wood floor and me just unexpectedly hearing it. It could have been, um, my dog barking because she thought she saw somebody, um, so many things just registered this response and it became sort of chronic just all the time and so physiologically I think I was in this massive panic the majority of my days and that led to me feeling very depressed um like shut down kind of maybe I can explain it as like I was at that state of the animal being alert and running from their prey to the prey catching up with me. And I was laying on the ground pretending I was dead. And that's sort of what it felt like when I went into depression. But I knew it because I have dealt with depression in my life and been on medication. And so I was able to recognize it. And I am very grateful for my past and the fact that I was able to recognize that and not sink into a depression. And I let my friends know to keep an eye on me. I called and checked in with them. I went up on my Zoloft um, from 100 milligrams to 150 milligrams, which I've never been on, but, and didn't want the side effects. But I also knew it was a really important time to make sure I was putting things into place to not allow myself to go into those darker places that i had been when I was younger. So... Anyway, I upped my medication and I started feeling better-ish. And then I got, finally got off the wait list to get into the medical university for their trauma therapy. And I went through 10 weeks of um, written exposure therapy of all things. Like it's almost ironic to me, but as someone who writes their feelings and Writes on social media for a living and all of that. It just, it felt like the perfect thing. Like she had no idea I do that unless she stalked me. I guess on Instagram. (laughs) I don't think my therapist did that, so I'm gonna assume it was just kind of luck of the draw. And so I went through those ten weeks, and it was sort of life changing. I have to relive the, um, the accident over and over and over and over again every week, and write down every single detail I could remember. And, um, all the feelings associated, like everything I could possibly think of the smells, the, what my, the bottoms of my feet felt like, like everything. And slowly I actually started to feel better. I felt like the PTSD symptoms, that fight or flight response was maybe only two or three times a day. There was just this huge change and I was so grateful for it. And then I finished therapy and I realized like, man, there is so much more here for me to uncover. Like I am not remotely who I was and I probably never will be and I don't know how to navigate that. So I kind of just started thinking a lot about All the things in my life, like all the stories from my childhood that for, you know, 35 plus years have been like on a replay in my brain. Anytime, any situation with my family comes up, the stories that I recall make my brain And my reactions feel worse. And I knew that was happening, but I didn't know how to stop it. And I wanted to be heard and understood by others, specifically in my family. I really wanted them to give me what I needed, what I needed. I want you to listen to me, to hear me, to see how much pain I'm in. And please just, just be there for me the way that I need you to be there for me. That's what I kept asking for. And then I'd get so angry because they weren't there for me the way that I wanted them
1: to be. And I would scream and I'd say, please, just please stop doing this to me. And then, I got tired of feeling that way. And my body was so tired. My nervous system was so tired. I had a physical, I had
0: all my blood work done and I was so tired and my thyroid levels were complete shit, but yet there was nothing else wrong with me and the numbers were so confusing that the doctor literally said to me, I've never seen this before. And I still don't honestly know what's wrong with me. I had an MRI today of my brain because they think I potentially could have an adenoma on my pituitary gland that's affecting the function of my pituitary and how it is able to communicate to my thyroid about my um, hormones and and what my body needs to release. And so as of now, it's still a little bit on decided what's going on, but I should know more about that in the coming days. So from a physical standpoint, I just, you know, felt very tired, um, gaining weight, even though I wasn't eating a lot or any differently and just feeling not myself in my body, like not athletic in the way I'm used to, but I was able to recognize it. I think that's what I want to say to anyone that might be in this situation that's similar to mine is that, you know, if you can at least like name the thing that feels off, if you can say, I feel so tired or I feel not myself, like even just saying, I feel not myself, like own that, like be okay with saying that to somebody and asking for answers and and going after those answers and asking like, I want to know more, like don't live in the abyss of the unknown and continual, I don't wanna explore it because I'm afraid of what the outcome is gonna be. I was sure I was gonna have cancer. Like I went in for the blood work and it took me a month to gain the courage to actually go get the labs done after I'd been to my primary because I was just sure I had cancer or something was like going to be terrible. So if you're in that place, I encourage you to just face it because ultimately we're going to have to face it. And once you can identify something that's wrong, there's an opportunity of some sort to be able to, you know, make a plan. So any right way right now, I'm a little bit in limbo, but what I did know is that there's a part of my brain (laughs) That is not operating the way it should. And my body and my brain, at least the way I see it now have been coexisting on different planets for about six or seven months now. And the fact that I now have something wrong with my pituitary is not that big of a shock actually. (laughs) And if I don't, reconnect my body and my brain together. I won't ever do anything but put a bandaid on what's happening to me. And I'm so grateful for the things that I've learned through my career and the experience that I have from understanding physiologically, emotionally, biomechanically how and through nature, most of all, through nature, like the way that our systems work together to speak to one another. And I was literally living out this human experience of disconnecting from my entire system, disconnecting my brain from all my other systems. I was living out the experience of being a tree in this world, having their limbs cut down, but still existing and standing upright not knowing if they're going to fall over and I knew that I needed help to get back to a place where I could come back into communication with my head and my heart and my body and so by a weird weird circumstance of events I ended up contacting this woman, her name's Emily Hightower. She works with the crew at shift. um, And she deals with people in trauma, just like me. And she's done this for 15, 20 years. And she blends this kind of Western medicine neuro approach with Eastern medicine and helps to help others reconnect their bodies and their brains using tools like breath work and what she calls neuro nidra many of you might know this as yoga nidra somatic practice all kinds of tools to help you see who you are clearly because in her words you can shut down your monkey brain and exist from the rational brain so you are able to become more clear and intentional. And so I've been working with her for about, mm, I want to say six, seven weeks now. And today we had a session and I told her there was this song that came on And I had heard it before and it just, my heart really like felt in it for whatever reason, but it's this woman who's singing it. She's talking about this feeling inside of, um, feeling strong enough that she could support her sister. I just made air quotes (laughs) speaking to myself with no video and I made air quotes, um, but she could support her sister who was struggling mentally and couldn't get out of bed and get out of her head. And she had the strength and they were bonded by blood. And she felt as if, if she could only see where she could be, if she could help her see where she could be, she would enable her to get out of her head and jump into the deep end because she had jumped into the deep end. And even though she knew her breath would run out, she knew the deep end was exactly where she needed to go. And when I listened to it, what I
1: heard was myself talking to myself. What I realized is that I'm in the deep end. I finally, I jumped into the
0: deep end and I found the person inside of me I'd been pleading to for so long.
1: To hear me, to see me, to be the person that I needed in these moments of terrible agony and sadness and unknown. And that I could be that person for myself. That I am that person that I am here and I have the tools to change the physiological response, to reconnect my brain with my heart so that when it disconnects, I am all that I need. And all those people in my life, my mom, my dad, my sister, my best friend, my brother, all the people that I wished, my husband, my son, the people I wanted to be there for me in this certain way, but I was just craving Because maybe my life didn't end up having all the things that it needed, just like everyone in this world and everyone listening to this. If you feel like all those needs that should have been there for you, the parent that you should have had, that should have hugged you more, should have... Paid attention to you and known you were going through so much. The sister who should have found more empathy for you instead of dismissing the feelings that you had. The brother who was in his own time of
0: self-hate and laid that into you on a daily basis, who you just wanted to put an arm around you and hug you and
1: tell you that they loved you instead of hitting you because they were stoned out of their fucking mind or the husband who you wanted them to see only your side of
0: the story only your side of the fight because you just needed them to
1: freaking hear you you just needed them to understand who you were inside but the truth is they will never ever 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 be able to give you what you need
0: they will never be able to give me what i need
1: The only person who can give me what I need is myself. And the only way that I can give that to myself
0: is to stay 100% connected
1: within my brain, within my body, within my heart.
0: So that I can jump in the deep end
1: so that I can jump in the deep end and I can save myself.